Now we're going to read from God's word in the book of Genesis, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, 
all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Have you heard of progressive revelation? The doctrine of progressive revelation. It's, it's a teaching, it's a, it's a doctrine of the Bible that says God unfolded his knowledge gradually. He revealed it to us, but it came out slowly. It came out in installments, in bite sizes, over time, over years. He progressively revealed his word and his will to us. The, the Bible, you, if you take your Bible, if you've looked at a Bible, it's a big book. It's a big book. I'm, I'm Probably any paper printing you have, it's got a thousand plus pages. But it did not come out in a single installment. It, it did not come out in two installments, like a, the Old Testament installment and the New Testament installment. It was published over the course of about 1,500 years. 39 books in just the Old Testament, 27 more books in the New Testament. Why did he do that? Why progressive Revelation. Why can't we have the whole thing? Part of the reason is this, apart from his wisdom and just his will, part of the reason is this. We, as humanity, we can barely, we can barely absorb it even at that rate. Maybe you can think of it this way. If, if you've gone through public school, if, if you've gone through grades K through 12, and, and, and during that time you learned math, 13 years of, of math. And, and what did you learn over, or what did you attempt to learn over those 13 years? Just the concept of numeration, numbers, then addition, multiplication. And then as you got into the further years, algebra maybe, geometry, calculus, what is the area under a curve? Okay. You could not take that all at once. You could not take the whole of K through 12 math and just, here you go, absorb it. You had to get it in a sequenced presentation. You needed time for it to sink in. And, and that's some, I think, of why we have progressive revelation, not only in, in the entirety of scripture, in God's plan to redeem the world and his people, but also even with things like this, the covenant with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant, you also see progressive revelation. You look at chapter 12, where the covenant with Abraham is introduced, and then a little bit more, a different angle, chapter 15, and then here today, Genesis 17. Different facets, different angles, different emphases, different promises are, are gradually unfolded. And in the life of Abraham, this happens not in a series of three meetings where God tells him, this is what I'm going to do, here's what you need to understand. It comes out over 25 years of Abraham and Sarah's lives. And, and that's partly just for him to absorb. You even see today in the reading, he's having difficulty absorbing something God has already directly said. 
The grandness of what God is doing, the richness of what God has promised to him, it requires smaller, bite-sized presentations in, for, in order for him to be able to start to get his head around it. And that could be true for you. Perhaps God in your life, maybe God in your life is working something that will be gradual and it will unfold over weeks, over, over decades. And so here is another angle on the Abrahamic covenant that we've been looking at, another angle. What we see is this. We see God's great covenant. This covenant to Abraham, God's great covenant cannot be earned, but it does make us work. God's great covenant can't be earned, but it does make us work. And we'll look at three things. We will see that this covenant of God, it becomes even greater. And then second, we'll see that the covenant of God, it can't be earned. And then thirdly, we'll see that the covenant of God does make us work. So let's start with the first thing. The covenant of God, it gets even greater. And so we have here, as chapter 17 opens, the Lord appears again, once again, to Abram. And in Genesis 12, how old was Abram? He was 75 years old. In Genesis 15, at that point now, he's, years have gone by. He's even older, probably around 80 years old. And when we come to our chapter today, Genesis 17, he is 99 years old. And the, the, the internal state of Abraham, he believes, he believes what God has said, but he's finding it hard to believe because it's been so long. Where is the son? What you see in this, just very briefly, we see this. As time goes on and you hear the promises, things that God has told you he would do, that he would be, we find that time tests our trust. Isn't it the case if, if someone makes you a promise and then five minutes later they, they deliver on it? They, they pay you the money. They give you the gift. You think, oh, that was great. But if they make you a promise and five minutes go by, five hours go by, five weeks go by, five years go by, it really tests your trust in the promise. And this is the question for you and your God. As you are waiting on him, as you are waiting, is your hope increasing or is it starting to decrease? As you are waiting on God over a long period of time, waiting for him to do something with your marriage, waiting for him to do something with your besetting sin, is your hope getting deeper and deeper in God, or is your hope starting to disappear? That's where Abram is. And what we have here in our chapter today, God expands the covenant. The, the promises of God's covenant, his commitment to Abraham, it gets even greater in this chapter. This is in verses three through eight, and verses 15 through 22. The Lord expands his covenant even more. Now, just to, to re refresh your, your mind, what do we mean by using the word covenant? It's, it's, it's not a concept that really has a great parallel today in our culture, in our time. A covenant, think about it this way. It's both an inheritance and a relationship. What God was promising to Abraham was this huge inheritance, the terms of the will, but also he was promising a relationship. God wasn't going to die and then disappear. It was a relationship that would endure and last it was a commitment given by God. Now, it expands here. What we see here is that God re-enumerates some of the things he's already said, but then it gets even bigger. So it expands. 
Not only will Abram become a nation, but here it says he will be many nations. That's in verses four through six. And he has promised before that Abram will have many descendants. But now here it gets even bigger. Verse seven, he says there will be many generations of many descendants. Previously, it was just a quantity of people. And now here it's this quantity, this extent of time. For all of these generations, there will be many descendants. Verse seven, and it's going to be perpetual. Verses three, verses 19, 17, it's an everlasting covenant. It's an always covenant. It will not end. Verse eight, it will be an everlasting possession. So it's forever, this covenant with Abram. There is no expiration. And it's not just many nations, many generations, and it's, it's this place. Previously, he's promised this place but he says it's this place forever. Verse eight, all the land of Canaan as an eternal possession for you. And so you, you can think of it this way. You, maybe you've heard recently, uh, we, we had this, um, uh, this um, parking lot contract where someone wanted to try to make a contract with us. And, and sometimes when people make a contract, the, the closest they seem to be able to come to making a contract that is forever is let's make it a 99-year contract. Let's make it a lease and the terms of this lease are for 99 years. That's as close as it comes because if you, to being everlasting. Because if you make a 99-year contract, the people who sign it, they will not be alive in all likelihood in 99 years. They'll be dead and gone. So in, in that sense, and in the sense of what God is offering, it is a contract with no termination date. And it's not just this place forever that God is, is offering, giving to Abram. He says, you will have sons, which he has said before, but now he says, not just sons, kings. Verse six, kings shall come from you. Verse 16, kings of peoples shall be from Sarai. And that means Abraham would expect not just all these descendants, not just a large family reunion, but there would be important sons. There would be influential sons, men of significance, daughters of significance. There would be governors who rose from Abraham. There would be CEOs. If they had Nobel Prizes then, there would be Nobel Prize winners who would come from the descendants of Abraham. And it's not just men that this promise is given to. It's not just to men. It's also to women. Sarai is included. In Genesis 17, which we looked at last week, Hagar, the, the maidservant, receives these personal promises from God within the scope of this covenant. And here, Sarai is brought in. And it's grace. It's grace that Sarah is brought in. Because in chapter 17, last week, as we saw, Sarah sinned. But here, grace comes in spite of her sin. Verses 19, verses 20. 21 tell us that it was 13 years later after Sarah's sin and after her shame and after her conflict over Hagar, Sarah is going to also receive the promise. Sarah will bear Isaac. And so women, not just men, but women are included and, and the covenant gets even greater in this way. God says, he had said earlier, I will be your protector. If people come against you, I will come against them. He says, I'm not just your protector. That's what he said in Genesis 15. But now he says, I will be your God. I will be your God. Don't let the, don't, don't let the familiarity with that phrase dull this to you. This is more significant than God saying, you've got a sponsor. Congratulations. You've got an immigration concern. You've got a financial backing concern. Um, you've got a sponsor. 
It's more significant than a sponsor. It's more significant than having someone who is now your new uncle. It's more significant than having someone who will be a husband to you. God is saying, you now have divine allegiance. And this is backwards if you think about it. When God says, verse 7, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you, verse 8, when he says, I will be their God, we tend to think of our human relationship with God in this way. We tend to think in terms of devoting ourselves. I am devoting myself to God, and that's good, and we need to do that, but that's not what God is saying here. That's not what God is even calling for here. God is devoting himself to Abraham. God is saying, I devote myself to you. You know, in, in a wedding, the commitment is forever. A wedding commitment is forever. It's until death. Here, God is making a forever commitment to Abraham and to all of his descendants to come. He repeats it so many times, you cannot make a mistake about it. And this is, this is something that makes this covenant with Abraham, it's exceedingly personal. This is anything, anything but just a mere property contract or a business relationship. It's exceedingly personal. In a wedding, what happens with the names? In a wedding, the bride, in our culture, the bride takes a new name. In the kingdom, it's the God of the covenant who gives you a new name. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. Sarai becomes Sarah. Abram becomes Abraham, the father of many. And, and, and so when you, when, you, when you see how this inverted commitment, this devotion of God to man, it should strike you this way. It's like those of you who have married above. You've married up. And, 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 and when you absorb it and you think it this way, you realize this is your thought. You think, she married me? She would marry me? And, and there's this delight, this surprise. And it's the same thing happening here with God's covenant with Abraham. God would be devoted to me? It's amazing. And what we see here is when God does this, it's, it's personal, but just the scope, the greatness of what he's promising is this. We consider what we see here in this chapter, that God is giving to Abram and all of his descendants. He is giving the fulfillment of every core human need. When you read through that list that we just briefly iterated through, God is offering what will fulfill every core human need. Everything that we wish for as humans. Everything that we work for as humans. It, if you read this chapter and you, you, you bring Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 into view, this is what we see. God is offering to Abram the fulfillment of everything that we as human beings were made to need and made to do. It's the human need and the human purpose described in Eden. Think about it. He says, not just sons, but kings. You remember that in Genesis? He said that you will have, you, you humanity, you are made to have dominion over the earth. You were meant for triumph in life, not meant for failure, not meant for fruitless struggle at your job, with your house, with your, your, what, your, 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 your livelihood and, and all of your estate, your human estate. The promise to Abram in this chapter is that there will be descendants, many descendants. Isn't that what we were meant for in Genesis? Multiply and fill the earth. We were meant for family. We were meant to be in a community, a thriving human community. We were meant to have a society and to be significant in society. The promise here is also for land, 
for all the land, he says. And isn't that what was in Genesis? Isn't that what we as humans were meant to know and to have? He told us to fill the earth, this earth. We were meant to have permanence in this life, not to die and to be forgotten. We were meant to have a possession, a place, a secure place to live, a place you could call your own. He promises kings, descendants, land, and he promises to Abram and to his descendants that I will be your God. And isn't that exactly what is in view? That personal commitment that God makes isn't that what was in view in Genesis? That you could be naked and unashamed, that the two could become one flesh in the marriage relationship, but also in the relationship before God. We were meant to have intimacy, human intimacy, intimacy, but also intimacy with God. That delight of being known, but not rejected. The delight of having someone know who you really are, everything about you, nothing hidden, and being adored. We were meant to live, to be loved, and to love. And so that's what you see God offering in this Abrahamic covenant. Everything that we work for, everything that we wish we had, we spend our entire lives, our entire lives working for that, working for success, working to somehow triumph over everything that's holding it back from us. We work our whole lives to try to, to gain some kind of stability, to, to make some kind of permanent, secure place, to find some kind of honor, to be at least a little bit significant in this life, to have the good opinion of others, and to some degree, it's true that we were all wired to have those things. Isn't it why we spend Monday through Friday living for all of that, putting in all those hours of study, all those hours at the office, all those calls and emails, trying to pull it all together and organize it and make it happen? Isn't that why you spend so much of your energy and emotion striving, socially striving to gain friends and to maybe even get a family? And isn't that why we work too much? Isn't that why we're down and we get bitter when we put in all those hours and our plans don't succeed? When we fail to promote? When, when we're turned down? When we do all that and we end up unloved, unknown, disrespected? And the feeling that we have is, I don't have enough. The feeling is, I'm not doing enough still. And that makes us feel like we don't really have worth. Think about it this way. Abraham and Sarah, it says here that they are strangers in the land. You are strangers. Verse eight. Abraham and Sarah are immigrants. They are immigrants in this land. They've been there for decades, but they're immigrants. I am a son of immigrants. I am a son of immigrants. Look around you. What's the experience of immigrant parents? Isn't it the case that in so many of the cases of, of immigrants that you know, they work harder, they work longer than many of the other people around them just to try to make a future for their children, to give them something that they can pass on that will last. They will, they will work low hours and long hours just to build something that they can pass down to their children. And 
stereotyping, but it's, there, it's, it's true to, to some extent that immigrants, immigrant parents can especially value achievement and value education and value hard work, and they think that's the way that they will provide honor and provide permanence and provide a place, something lasting for their kids. This, this is in view in this covenant promise and relationship to Abram. The covenant of, of, of God is something that's great. It gets even greater here. And it's because it fulfills every human need. And we will work off our tails to try to get a piece of it. So the covenant of God gets greater here. We also see this. The covenant of God, it can't be earned. It can't be earned. That's, that's a tension in this text. It's a tension that's in this covenant. The covenant that's presented here, it's actually the same covenant that's the new covenant in the, the New Testament. It's, it's the covenant is this dynamic, it's, 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 a, it's the living structure by which we relate to God. It's how we live in a way that just is right with God. But there's a tension in it. Because what you hear here is that God initiates and God gives everything for human fulfillment to those who believe. God does it all. Permanence, possession, honor, personal love. But there's a tension from two sources. There's a tension first this way. There's a tension from our instinctual expectation. We don't think it could be given by God. That all of that, all that we need, all that we long for and wish for and work for, that could just be given by God. Instinctively, we think, no, it can't be that way. It's the thought of the immigrant parent that says, you've got to work. You've got to work to earn it, to deserve it, to be worthy, to have it. And so we expect that these things have to be earned and that we have to be the ones who do the earning. But God says here, you don't achieve it. You don't achieve it. You receive it. You believe that I give it to you. Grace completely flips it over. The kingdom of God, this covenant of God, it is the place for beggars, for fools, for crooks, for people who have failed who did not hit the mark, but who confess and who believe. There's a tension just from our instinctual expectation that it has to be earned. There's also a tension, though, that's even in this text. The text seems to say, initially, you've got to earn this, but you can't earn it. You've got to just receive it. It seems like it's saying both. Which is it? He says in verse 1, I am the almighty God. And then he says, Walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. But the tension comes when he says, be blameless, but then in verse 9, he says, keep my covenant. And you think, keep his covenant, be blameless. And he says in verse 10, this is my covenant. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He's, this is what God is saying. Keep my covenant. Here's how you keep it. Be circumcised. That's what it means to keep his covenant. Be circumcised. And, and there's a tension there. Which is it? Be perfect or be circumcised? Here's why it's surprising. Here's why circumcision is not just the way to be perfect. Circumcision is entirely passive. Circumcision, if you could put it this way, circumcision is not an action that you do. It's entirely passive. Circumcision, it's not something that was unique to Israelites. It was common but not universal in that day and time. Other peoples practiced it. And so you kids, you're taking your notes. You're like, circumcision, how do I even spell it? What is it? Here's, here's what circumcision is. 
Circumcision is cutting off the foreskin. It is a small piece of skin that's cut off from the place that's used for reproduction. It's just a small piece of skin used for reproduction that's just cut off. Verse 10 says, Abraham and every son to come must be circumcised. Verse 12 says it must be done to an infant on the eighth day. Now, it's a fitting picture. All these promises of multiple children for generations and generations. Circumcision is the best picture that God could have picked. He's saying, cut off the tip of procreation and God will give you innumerable generations. And so what they would have received if they were circumcised, if they got this small cut, is a permanent sign. It was a lifelong scar. It was an intimate sign as well. It was an intimate sign of promise that would be present every time a couple hoped to conceive a son in Israel. The circumcision would be there, dead center, a reminder. Now, is circumcision something that you do? Is it an action? Is it a work? It's entirely passive. It's just a sign, it says in verse 11. It's a sign of the covenant. Without it, though, you're a covenant breaker, he says. Verse 14. If you're not circumcised, you will be cut off from your people. You have broken my covenant. And so it's like, circumcision is like a contract where God performs everything in it. All you have to do is sign it to say, I'm in. I receive it. It's entirely passive. And so if we learned anything from Genesis 15, when God walked between the pieces of the animals, that contract, the contents of it are this. God promised the entire freight of performance on himself. He put his life on the line, the cut pieces. And Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Abram believed. And that's what God counted as righteous performance. So circumcision is just this physical gesture that says, I believe. I believe. Romans 4 is a chapter that is entirely devoted to interpreting this chapter. I'm not going to read it. We're not going to be able to go through it. But this whole thing of, is it my works or is it just God's grace that I receive? That's the dynamic there. In, in Romans chapter 4, if you read in that chapter, especially Romans 4, verses 9 through 11, verse 13, it was by receiving God's gracious promise, Abraham was made to be the heir of the world. So it's important to rightly understand what circumcision was and what it was not. On the surface, it might look to you, look to us, like circumcision is some kind of significant religious ceremony, significant religious sacrifice, some kind of noteworthy accomplishment that Abraham did. But in reality, Circumcision is just the passive reception of a permanent mark. It says that Abraham was circumcised. In all likelihood, Abraham did not circumcise himself. Someone else circumcised him. It was unlikely that Abraham cut off his own foreskin. And for all the infants in succeeding generations, those babies did not circumcise themselves. Someone else circumcised them. It was passive. It was entirely received. Circumcision was a mark. It was just a signature on the line. It was like a tattoo, like a brand that said, God has put his mark on you. God has committed himself to me. Circumcision was always a statement about what God would do, not what I could do or what man could offer. It was the expressive sign that God would be your God. So don't think of circumcision as some kind of religious act or achievement. It's just a scent. 
Circumcision is just a scent. It's a statement of reception. It's a visible expression, I believe. Now, this is a question that you can ask yourself. You're thinking about this whole, do I work for it or do I just receive it? How do you relate to God? How do you imagine the dynamic between you and God? And and what will get God's favor for you? What will get God's blessing for you? What will assure you that God loves you? And even if you're not a Christian, you can ask it this way. Just how do you relate to life? How do you think life works? Is it you do it, you put in the hours, and you will get achievement. You will be recognized. You will earn it. Do Do you relate to God or to life on the basis of deserving or receiving? Deserving or receiving. Theologically, we could say, do you operate? Do you face life? Do you face God? On the basis of works or grace. Works earn the reward. I did this. I deserve that. But grace gives unearned reward. But if you're thinking on the term, in terms of deserving, that this is about what I could earn, you work hard and you expect to be rewarded. You, you, you expect if you put in the effort, you will earn the blessing. And you especially expect that if you have run a certain course, undertaken a certain endeavor, and you did it blamelessly, that especially makes you worthy to be admired and to be loved and to be approved of. Think, think of an illustration this way. Think of, think of there, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a, an immigrant parent, and he's got a son and a daughter. This, this immigrant parent's got a son, let's call him Vincent, and he's got a daughter, let's call her Vicky. Vincent and Vicky, sons and, son and daughter of an immigrant. The immigrant parent, the father, came to America. He came to America, he started with nothing, he worked 70 hours a week for decades. He made incredible sacrifices for his two kids. And slowly, over time, he built a business, he built a little business. And during those times, as he raised those, the son and his daughter, Vincent, and he raised his daughter, Vicky, through all of his sacrifices, he set them up to get a solid education. And as they were in grade school, he pressured them. Apply yourselves. Work hard. You need to study. You need to get good education. And, and then you can go to college. And he set them up to go to college. How did it turn out for them? Vincent turned out to be a son who had less fortitude than his father, Vincent dropped out of college in his sophomore year. He moved back in with his parents. And in his father's business, he was hired. He received an assistant manager position in dad's prospering small business. Vincent enjoys a life working 40 to 45 hours a week, living with his parents. He enjoys his evenings. He enjoys his weekends with his friends. What did Vicky do? Vicky went through school. She went through college. She is an academic and a professional high achiever. She got her bachelor's degree, and then she went through law school. She works 70 hours a week in her, in her firm as a corporate attorney. She is well off. She is respected. She is financially stable. What is it like between Vicky and Vincent? Well, with Vicky, towards Vincent, there's a little bit of resentment. There's a little bit of nagging towards Vincent. She, Vicky is always telling Vincent, you need to try a little bit harder. Have you ever thought about going back to school and finishing your degree? A little bit of resentment, a little bit of nagging for him to perform more. With Vincent, how does he view his situation and his sister? Well, he's comfortable, but he does live with this little bit of shame, living in Vicky's shadow, all that she accomplished, and it's, it, he has just very modest situation. He's not really interested in reaching any higher. Now, here's the question about Vicky and Vincent. What should dad do as he starts to 
you know, he's getting close to the end. It's time for him to retire. How is he going to wrap up this business? Who's it going to go to? Should he give? Should he give both Vincent and Vicky a 50-50 division of the estate? Should Vincent, who's the only one who's working in it, should Vincent receive the entirety of the business? And Vicky, no part of the business. Should Vicky, this prosperous, diligent daughter, should she receive even more favor and affection from her father? Which child do you think is bringing more to the table? If you relate to life or you relate to God on the basis of your work, on the basis of your performance, you know which way you're going to break with that, aren't you? Because what you find is when you work, but the blessing is denied, the blessing is delayed, appreciation is just absent for all your work, you're angry, you're resentful. And and, and if you relate to God and you relate to, to life this way, when you sin, when you fail, when you're only in third place in the office ranking, you fall into despair because inside what you're telling yourself and thinking is you don't deserve the blessing. That's where we, that's where we come up with mom guilt. That's where we come up with this perpetual feeling of failure for students who are always behind, who are never making the grades that they thought they should have been able to make. The underlying calculation is when you work to score high, when you work hard to improve yourself, when you do that, your perfection will earn you the covenant blessing. That standard, be blameless in verse one, it's the threat that constantly hangs over your head. Am I blameless this week? Was I blameless this week? Did I do enough or did I, did I do wrong? Did I mess up? Did I sin? And that question feeds this other question. Am I worthy to be loved? And, and, and it affects how you not only view God and his love, it affects how you look at others. Do you feel like more of a success? Do you feel better when you see others fail? Do you look down on people who work less and put in less at the job than you do, in the ministry than you do, who exert themselves less in serving than you do? Do you look down on them? The lesson of the text is to receive, not earn God's grace. Now, how do we get it? How do we get it? We, we don't get this covenant blessing of perpetuity and progeny and prosperity and greatness. We don't get it through hard work. We don't get it through extraordinary personal sacrifice. We will not, cannot get it through blameless religious observance. How do we get it? It's through the gospel. Because when you believe then circumcision is something that you receive, not achieve. Because in the gospel, Jesus Christ is the one person who is truly circumcised. And his circumcision was the greatest religious accomplishment. It was the ultimate personal sacrifice. Because Jesus was not circumcised with a small cut to the flesh. But Jesus was entirely cut off. Cut off from the land of the living. Cut off from his people. On the cross, as if he were the one who had broken the covenant, when we were the ones who had broken the covenant, he was cut off for our sins. Jesus was cut off so that you could come in, so that you would be sealed in this covenant grace. He's the true circumcision. The gospel tells you this. You may spend your days feeling unlovely and unloved, because you didn't 
deserve it because you don't earn it. But in the gospel, you are in Christ. And that means nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That little word in is so significant. If you want to know that you are loved by God, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Believer, because you are in the lovely Lord Jesus who lived blamelessly, God finds you lovely. Perhaps you're going to fail a hundred times this week. Maybe you'll have a temper eruption with your mom. Maybe you'll have bitter envy at happy people around you. Maybe you will indulge your appetite to excess, and you're ashamed of that. Believer, this morning, receive the grace of God again. Christ cleanses you. The Father delights in you in Christ. So as we close, let me just say this. The covenant of God can't be earned, but the covenant of God does make us work. Faith is followed by works. Out of faith flow our good works. You see that in verses 22 through 27. Immediately, Abraham circumcises all his house. The immediacy of Abraham's obedience when he believes. And so this is the tension. Do you put in the hard work because you have to? Should you work hard? Should you pursue virtue? Should you serve God and should you put off sin and the deeds of the flesh? Yes, but not because it will earn you anything. Not because, God, I've obeyed, now you owe me. You put in the work not because you have to. You put in the work because you like to. When you truly receive and when you truly believe, you get circumcised not just outwardly, but in your heart. Circumcision was always intended to be not on the outside, but inwardly of the heart, to be circumcised of heart. And so what happens when a person becomes a Christian? You recognize and you admit that you've sinned. You believe and you receive the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your place, and you also believe and receive the admirable works of Jesus, his righteousness by faith, apart from the works of the law. When you believe this, when this is your experience, and you become circumcised of heart, at some point, you will say, God changed my heart. I like obeying God. I like imitating Jesus. The Spirit of God has given me this new heart. That was always what was in view with circumcision. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Believer, don't ask, do I have to do this? Ask, do I love God? Am I in love with Jesus? The new heart is the heart of Jesus. You like doing what Jesus likes. He was gentle with the wayward, and he was gentle with you. He was self-denying for the pleasure of God. He was self-sacrificing for the good of others and for your good. Do you like how Jesus treats you? Would you like to be that way? I'll close with just a very brief Example, a number of years ago, my wife and I thought it would be good to talk about how we could improve in our marriage, improve in our marriage relationship. And one of the things that she brought up, I, I needed more help and feedback. She pointed out was, you know, I would, I would feel, I know you love me, but I would feel, I would actually sense that you love me if you could just do a few things, like if you could occasionally do the dishes instead of me and the kids always being the one who do the dishes. That would just demonstrate to me that you really do love me. And when I first heard that, I thought, this is ridiculous. 
I've got my own responsibilities. How could that possibly say more than I've already said and demonstrated in other ways? And so I, I resented it, but I tried to do it. But I did it in a way like, don't you see? Aren't you going to approve it? And sometimes I would do the dishes and she didn't notice. And sometimes I would do the dishes and she would point out that I left several things undone. I struggled through that, and I'm talking about for years. But there came a point where I started to do the dishes just because I loved her. And it didn't matter whether she had some criticism about it. It didn't matter whether she even saw it. I was just doing it because I loved her, and I knew it mattered to her. Have you believed? Put down all of your best efforts Receive the righteousness and the cleansing of Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus who became for us righteousness. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus took the blame for you. Jesus put in the work for you. Don't you love it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, convince us again that you love us. Convince us again, Lord, that We could never do enough, and you don't want us to do good enough because that has never worked. Convince us that you came and did it all for us, bore the penalty of our sins, accomplished for us a righteousness, a garment so spotless and pure and radiant that we dazzle. We thank you for the grace of the gospel that we have received in Christ. We do believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.